I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strass. Addiction psychiatry. In the world of substance use disorder, we hear a lot of references to this mental health medical subspecialty. But what are the details? Joining us to help sift through this query, addiction psychiatrist, Dr. Darrow Shorter. Dr. Shorter is medical director of addiction services at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. He's also associate professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome to the program, Darrow. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just dive right into this. What makes a psychiatrist an addiction psychiatrist? And while we're talking about that, what is it that motivated you to take this path? I love that question because it gives me an opportunity to talk about the hope that I see in the field of addiction psychiatry, which was really what attracted me to this work. When I was in residency, I had the good fortune of working with lots of different kinds of patients that were struggling with both mental health as well as substance use disorders and working with folks that were dealing either with a substance use disorder or with a co-occurring illness was that if folks were able to establish abstinence or maybe make a change in their relationship to substances, that things in their lives just got a lot better. All of a sudden, their antidepressant worked a little bit better. Marriages got a little bit better. Their ability to show up in their work and in their life got a little bit better. For me, that just represented a great opportunity and a, and a real sense of hope. And so one of the things that I feel has become a cornerstone part of my own career is to try to transmit that hope to people who might be struggling with substance use disorder. Those years was, were sort of the earlier days of the opioid epidemic. Some people might refer to that as the second wave. And we were seeing lots of folks coming into our clinical settings who were using prescription opioids in addition to heroin. Because Suboxone was becoming more widely accepted and more widely available, I think that was probably around the time that we began to witness a real medicalization of substance use disorders that people out in the public could understand. There was a medication that was available to treat opioid use disorder that was accessible to folks in an office-based setting. So it really reduced a lot of the stigma that I think was around our sort of classic methadone maintenance treatment program, which maybe in some ways back then served as a barrier because people didn't necessarily feel comfortable presenting for care. You could get Suboxone from your prescriber on a weekly or even a monthly basis. And so that really opened up a lot of people to receiving care and accessing care for the first time. One of the things that I think is really kind of critically important to understand about addiction psychiatrists is that we are both psychiatrists and we are folks that specialize in the treatment of substance use disorders as well as behavioral addictions. In our specialty, we feel comfortable utilizing psychotherapy. There's a lot of folks that have substance use disorders alongside mental health conditions and like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in addition to a substance use disorder. You Utilizing pharmacotherapy in addition to psychotherapy in an effort to treat those conditions is, I think, is the, sort of the bread and butter of what an addiction psychiatrist does. And it brings up a very interesting and current problem because the Suboxone waiver is about to disappear if it hasn't disappeared already. And it opens up treatment to a whole range of folks not achieve the clinical skills that they are advertising. It seems that so many people are treating substance abuse disorders, and many of them are good, no question about it. But are we seeing the shift to the treatment of addictions very much the way psychiatry has seen the shift of depression to the generalist who just gives selects of 40 milligrams and see you in two months? 
nuance, because if that's the case, we're really missing the nuances of what we're trying to treat. That's how it strikes me. My question is, again, we still have such a major problem managing substance abuse issues in the United States. Are we actually developing a treatment force that is skilled enough for the challenge? I think we are. One of the the challenges that is present in the treatment of addictive disorders is there is not consensus in the field about what causes, what the sort of underpinnings of an addictive disorder really are. You might find in the field where you have addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry folks, and you might have chemical dependency counselors, social work psychologists across the gamut of mental health providers. Everyone that comes to that particular table may come with a very different impression about what causes addiction. It's important to recognize that what you think about the causes of addiction directly determines and influences what recommendations you make regarding its treatment. For example, if I believe as a person who is in recovery, maybe I'm doing community health work, maybe I'm working as a peer recovery specialist, my recovery was based upon involvement in a mutual help group like Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, or 12-step. And that was the thing that revolutionized my existence and my recovery and saved my life. Then it follows that I would want for other people to access care or treatment in that same way. If, on the other hand, you're an addiction psychiatrist and you have approached this from the standpoint that this is a neurobiochemically mediated chronic relapsing medical condition brain disease, then you're going to maybe approach this through a different avenue. If you are a social worker and you talk a lot about the psychosocial family influences of and how that might play into why it is that someone develops a substance use disorder. If you're talking about attachment theory, if you're psychodynamically oriented versus cognitive behaviorally oriented as a psychologist, all of these things play into your understanding of what causes addiction. You come to see, and I believe that this is a biologically based brain disease, I prescribe medications to treat that. And I think that psychotherapy is really helpful with that. But I also recognize that there's no one pathway to recovery for an individual. That could mean that in addition to prescribing medications and offering psychotherapy, I also encourage people to participate in mutual health groups like AA and a smart recovery, refuge recovery, you name it. With so many different models for addiction, how do we set up algorithms to know what's best? It turns out that there's like a lot of evidence out there to support what works and what doesn't work. For example, we know that contingency management works extraordinarily well for stimulant use disorders. One of the challenges with contingency management, however, is implementing contingency management in clinical settings. And contingency management for is a strategy and it's an approach toward behavioral change where you incentivize certain types of behaviors. And so contingency management, what you might find is that uh, someone receives a payment or a voucher for presenting to a clinical setting and having a negative urine drug screen. So you're incentivizing a certain type of behavior among your patient population. Well, we know that it works extremely well 
we have this conversation about harm reduction. And I think that one of the things that we should really focus on is helping people to understand that harm reduction is addiction treatment. It's not an alternative to addiction treatment. It is actually addiction treatment. There's a lot of different factors that I think come into play. We have FDA approved medications for the treatment of alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, nicotine, or tobacco use disorder. Are colleagues utilizing these medications? There's a massive underutilization of medications to treat addiction disorders. Part of what becomes critically important for me, and one of the reasons why I'm always talking about this is because I want for our colleagues, I want for clinicians to feel comfortable utilizing the treatment modalities that we know work. So there has to be a part of this where we're trying to encourage people to implement some of the treatments and the strategies that have evidence behind them. Also, we want to encourage continued research into novel substances and novel, novel medications that might, again, begin to shift this for folks as well. Addiction is so often seen as a hopeless field, especially among physicians. Physicians in general have that perspective. It's a hopeless diagnosis. Uh, you know, recidivism is pretty significant no matter what approach, no matter what model one is using. In light of that, how optimistic are you? So I'm pretty optimistic. One of the things that I, I realized pretty early on, especially in general psychiatry training, is that the places where physician colleagues learn about addiction, they learn about it in clinical settings where they are seeing folks who are at the most severe disorder. You see folks that are presenting in your emergency departments where they are perhaps presenting either in acute intoxication or in withdrawal. No one is at their best. In psychiatry, I remember the first folks that I was seeing that had an addictive disorder were on an inpatient psychiatric unit. I didn't really get to see patients that were in an outpatient clinical setting, actively engaging in treatment, who were taking medication, who were involved in psychotherapy, either individual or group therapy. I didn't see that until, not consistently, until maybe my third, fourth year of psychiatry training. I'm grateful that I was able to see it because in comparison to some of our other colleagues in internal medicine or family or what have you, they never get the opportunity to see people in a clinical setting where they're actively engaged in care for their substance use disorder and having some success in doing so. And by success, I'm, I don't necessarily mean abstinence. I mean that they're just maybe coming for their appointment, they're retained in treatment, or they're experiencing fewer harms as a result of their substance use, or they're using at a frequency or in an amount that is less than what it was when they first started. So I think part of our understanding of what constitutes treatment success also has to change. But I do think that we, in medical education, we only expose medical trainees to the most severe cases of substance use disorder. So part of the reason that there is this impression among doctors is because we sort of do this to ourselves. Bring up a very good point because in my own psychiatric training, I was exposed to a place in New York City called the Bernstein Institute. And it's no longer there. And it's where, as you said earlier, the greater levels of pathology went. And the highest 
chance of success were proportionally less because of the number of variables, sadly, tragically, that these people have. That's not the most typical treatment modality that we see. And there's a lot of substance abuse that softer, but very real, which we see when we finally get out. It's like the, the internist who gives an antidepressant. Many times that would be sufficient, but sometimes they have to refer to the specialist. And one of the things that Brent and I did is talk about rating scales to try to rate the severity of where I'm going with all of this is for me a, a major clinical challenge because sometimes I don't know where to refer people. I don't know where to tell them to start. Go to AA. Everybody goes to AA. Well, AA is pretty powerful. Let's not take away from AA. Do I just need a social worker? Oh my God, if I take the medicine, I'm just changing one drug for another drug. Your position, sir, please, someone calls us. Where do we tell them to get started? Yeah, great question. So the sad reality is that this is data according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health from SAMHSA, but roughly 90% of people with a substance use disorder receive no treatment which is to me astounding. I think part of that is because sometimes people don't necessarily know where to refer. I think unfortunately in our culture, we have told people that if they have an addictive disorder, it is their fault and their responsibility for treating it on their own. So some of this needs to be about destigmatization of substance use disorders. When I'm encountering and talking to folks, especially in the community about where to refer, I do think it is okay to have someone start with their primary care physician if they happen to have a primary care. I'm trying to do a couple of different things when I say this. One, people with substance use disorders often have comorbid medical conditions that are chronic in nature and that have never been addressed. If even in the context of someone's substance use disorder, you're able to identify a medical problem, that might be the hook for that person. That might be the thin where they say, okay, well, I've got high blood pressure now. No, I'm maybe not interested in making changes related to alcohol use or substance use, but I've got a family history of high blood pressure. Now I have high blood pressure. My doctor started me on a high blood pressure medicine. So I'm willing to take that, even if sporadically I'm willing to take it. And now there's a reason for that person to be getting in medical care. And these become opportunities for their primary care physician to provide some sort of intervention. It can begin just with the PCP. Not everybody's interested in coming to see a psychiatrist, and certainly not everybody's coming to ready to see an addiction psychiatrist right out the gate. I recognize that when people come to me, it's because they've oftentimes had multiple treatment episodes prior to landing in my office. But I think that that's okay, as long as there are steps along the way where people feel comfortable referring. One of the things, and I just throw it in right now, not to distract you because you're going down a great path, but I see a lot of people who feel no hesitancy about going and getting their medical marijuana card, and they come to us after it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So that is part of the formula. I don't know where to put it, but I had to put it on the table. Okay, now you're trying to make this real complicated. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say about cannabis, wow, is that most states, a growing number of states have, I'm in Texas, I think you all mentioned that, and we now have compassionate use registry here in Texas called CURT. And we have an increasing number of physicians as well as an increasing number of patients who are signed up with CURT so that you can obtain medical cannabinoid. And in the state of Texas, that is no greater than 1% THC, THC being the, the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis. There are, are folks that have this, these sort of 
THC uh, CBD products that are now available to them for a series of medical conditions that are approved on the uh, compassionate use registry. As I talk to friends and colleagues, people that are like really pulling out their hair about like, what do I do about my patient who is on the registry, has a condition that qualifies, but I, you know, I'm still waiting for the evidence. We are all struggling with that. Typically what I encourage is I say, listen, we know that there are some conditions that have better evidence than others. So what we talk to patients about is the risks that are associated with use versus the benefits. And if someone finds that their use of a medical cannabinoid is not really having the impact that they would like for the condition that they are seeking treatment. So I'll, I'll use PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as an example. Here in Texas, PTSD is a compassionate use medical cannabis condition. If that individual finds that their PTSD symptoms continue unchecked, they're not better, they find that, that they're that they're continuing to struggle with like nightmares or avoidance or anxiety or hypervigilance or what have you, then that becomes an opportunity for intervention. Everybody that comes to us is not necessarily interested in making changes related to their substance use. And that's a hard thing for us to sit with as physicians. But sometimes our job is to say, okay, well, this part of your plan is not working for you. Perhaps we can incorporate some of these other strategies that do have a little bit more evidence. So are you taking an, an antidepressant? Have you engaged in cognitive processing therapy, which is an evidence-supported form of psychotherapy for treatment of PTSD? These become opportunities for intervention and further conversation uh, rather than rejecting patients or discharging patients from care because they're not participating in care the way that we ideally would see it. So you raise the issue there that oftentimes the patients are not interested in treating their substance use. So as physicians, do we have an ethical obligation to try to convince them to move in that direction? Or actually, are we ethically committed to respect their autonomy? I think we're ethically responsible for respecting their autonomy because the reality is that our messages about the dangers of drug use don't work. And in fact, most times when patients come in, they know more about drugs than we ever did. They use them. You coming at somebody and telling them you need to stop, A, they have heard that message before from people that they know and actually care about and they don't know you. And why should they trust what you have to say? Because you're a stranger to them. You may have an MD or DO behind your name, but that doesn't really mean anything to someone who is using a substance on a regular basis. And they have heard this message from people who actually know them and care about them. Friends, loved ones, whomever. I doubt very seriously that these fear tactics that people try to use or the psychoeducation piece that we sort of hide behind as physicians, in my position, in my opinion, do really much of anything for anybody, especially because oftentimes physicians are being educated about drugs from their patients. Since we also have an ethical obligation to practice beneficence, which we as physicians generally think is to do the right thing, do what's good for our patient, which is getting them off of the substance, what's a better approach? So, and this gets dicey because there are going to be some people out there who can engage in regular substance use and they never experience harm to say that you have to get people to stop using drugs. I don't know that that's entirely true. I'm not necessarily advocating substance use, but I'm also not able to say that everyone who uses substances has a substance use disorder. 
they are not the same. And there are people that engage in all kinds of use of substances uh, and other types of behaviors for the record that are potentially harmful, potentially place them at potential risk, but don't necessarily rise to the level of disorder. One of the questions that I often ask people in the community is when's the last time you texted while you were driving? That's a dangerous behavior. Introduce the nuances here in not judging a use pattern with a dysfunction. There is a difference. Oh, and, for sure. And I, I had a gentleman who briefly put, had a bad marriage, started drinking, had one DUI, and knows how lucky he was that he only had one DUI, woke up in jail, looked around and said, this isn't working anymore. That was his epiphany. And that's when it switched from it being functional or allowing some functioning to dysfunctional. Maybe we're not, we don't work hard enough to differentiate the different levels of substance abuse. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I, I, I can track with you. So the reality is that, and I'm going to complicate it even further for you, but there are people who at one point in their life might meet criteria for an alcohol or substance use disorder at one point in their life early on, and then they may go on later in life to develop a non-disordered pattern of use of that same substance. So some of your listeners probably have college-age children who are engaging in heavy episodic binge drinking on a regular basis on their college campus. Their kids could theoretically meet criteria for alcohol use disorder right now. But drinking on a college campus in some ways is pro-social. It's supported by the environment. You take them out of that environment. You put them in another setting entirely. They're working. They're in a relationship or not. They're doing whatever it is that they're doing in their 20s and 30s. And they don't necessarily have an alcohol use disorder or wouldn't meet DSM criteria for a current alcohol use disorder in that moment. This is true for folks that are maybe in the military as well. So the reality is that just because you even meet criteria at one point in your life, I mean, we have to begin thinking about this. Maybe times later when someone no longer meets criteria. Now, how you define that as being in remission or not is a, is a separate question. But I just want to complicate our understanding of this idea that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I don't even use that language about it being an alcoholic. I, I call, I centered the person to talk about persons with alcohol use disorder, but there is this notion, this idea perpetuated primarily as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous sort of 12-step recovery that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I don't know that that's true. And in fact, there are a lot of people who will tell you, I'm not an alcoholic anymore, not because they've gotten a cure, but because maybe they have are at a different point in their life. Very, very controversial way of thinking about this. We know that there are folks out there that develop a, a relationship with alcohol and even some substances that is not problematic after they have had a problematic relationship to it in the past. Which all begs the question again, as clinicians, which patients should we be treating? Only the ones who actually come to us and say, hey, I need some help. I want you to guide me through this. Should we be doing screenings in the primary care level? and then beginning to have conversations with people or individuals whose family members are concerned, but the patient's not concerned, how to make these? Uh... I think a lot of it has to do with why the person has come to see us. Screening can be extremely 
uh, helpful and important. The amount of resources that are required, and this is an interesting part of it, I think, but the, the amount of resources that would be required to screen everybody for a substance use, not even a use disorder, would be tremendous. And just because you identify someone as having a particular substance in their system, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person even needs treatment at that point. It just means that they're engaging in substance use. It's, it's complicated because I think in healthcare, our opinions, judgment, biases, prejudices, stereotypes about people who use substances are so great that actually it might do more harm for a physician to know that this person was using a substance and then label them as a substance user. So I guess I asked the question about like, why do you want to know this information? Part of it could be because you're trying to like sort of mitigate healthcare risks. And I want to acknowledge that that part of altruism that, that is certainly present for people, but with it comes all of the judgment as well. The same judgment and statement that really is more of a problem because it keeps people from seeking care when they actually do need it. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, they may get discharged from care because they're not doing what we want them to. Precisely. And you bring up again another very good point. Maybe we have to sit down and be a bit more arduous about how we come to clinical decisions and labeling and not be so quick to come to conclusions. There's a multitude of layers here and somebody who had the good fortune of a lot of good training in psychotherapy, psychosocial interventions and all those types of things begins to understand that if you don't look at the environment, if you don't look at the situational issues, you could be completely wrong. So the college environment, the uh, weekend with away environment, or family stresses, if we don't put that into the formula, we're going to miss the etiology or the definite level of pathology. I don't think we discussed this enough. Certainly not. It's because I have the, the good fortune of working in a medical school and, and being exposed to social determinants of health, social determinants of mental health, and having that be a, a core component of any conversation that we have about a medical condition. Part of, of understanding the social determinants and really structural determinants, this has evolved even further, is understanding that there is a huge mistrust of healthcare systems, rightfully so, from a lot of people in a lot of communities. And we perpetuate it with our bias, stigma, and prejudice against folks, especially if they have a substance use disorder or even if they use substances. These are situations where I think clinicians really have to do their own work and their own soul searching about why do I think the way that I do about substances? Where did I learn this information and these questions? I mean, it, it was sort of mind-blowing even for me to get to a place in my career, and I didn't start off here. I mean, I, I landed here with this understanding that, you know what, there are going to be some people who actually don't have cocaine use disorder. They just use cocaine. Most of my life, most of my career, I was training to help people stop cocaine use. We have to parse out folks that have cocaine use disorder. Let's figure out what to do and how to help those folks and, and treat them. And then we talk to people who are engaged in cocaine use about the risks, which they already know. <laughs> they are already aware of the risk, but we talk to them about it anyway. And we try to keep the door open so that there isn't a barrier to them based on a feeling of judgment or stigma from the medical community, which has been present for decades.
So we're too quick to add the word disorder. Oh, for sure. You just use cocaine. You don't have a cocaine use disorder. Yes. That, and I know I'm repeating what you said, and I'm going to say it again, that is a huge, very powerful subtlety that maybe too many of our mental health or just healthcare providers don't take into consideration because one of the things Brent and I have, have learned and talked about is the impact of the stigma that we as a healthcare profession impose on the patients. We make it worse for them sometimes. Our stigma probably kills more people than cocaine does. Our stigma, our judgment of people, communities, probably kills more people than cocaine does. Think about the number of people that do not come into care or they come into care extremely late. Their condition has progressed to a point of severity where treatment is very, very difficult. It's not going to do anything for them at that point because what they were concerned about was that you were going to judge them. I remember when I, when I was uh, early in my career, we'd get calls and people had, say, schizophrenia. They were being evaluated in the ER and they came in and they had a cough. And you might say, okay, I know that this person has a history of schizophrenia. Are they actively psychotic, hearing voices, seeing things currently delusional? No, they don't seem to be. They just have a cough. Can we get a psych consult? Why? For a patient with schizophrenia presenting with a chief complaint of a cough, that person doesn't need a psych consult. They need a chest x-ray. Did you do one? Did you listen to their lungs? Stigma is something that folks in mental health have been dealing with about our patients for a long time. And then it gets even one step worse, uh, step, one step further when you're talking about someone who, who chooses to do to themselves the most dangerous possible thing where they use substances. Meanwhile, you're texting while you're driving. So to further complicate this discussion in right. looking about interventions for people who are using substances, uh, let's bring in fentanyl, fentanyl and the fentanyl analogs. How does this adjust your thinking? Oh, I mean, so it's funny. I mean, I've gotten to a point where this is probably one of the most radical statements I've made, that we have gotten to a point where we need buprenorphine prescribed, we need Suboxone prescribed. Because of the dangers of fentanyl on the street, it is in all kinds of stuff. People don't even know about it. These counterfeit pills they're getting have little bits of fentanyl in it. They don't know. Sometimes people are, I've had patients come in and they think they're getting one thing and you do a urine drug screen and you tell them, oh, you know, your urine was positive for fentanyl. And they're like, what are you talking about? I don't use fentanyl. Actually, it turns out you do use fentanyl. You don't know you're using fentanyl, but you're using fentanyl. In a situation like this, I do think there's a ton of danger around certainly the sort of unfettered use of opioids and so glad that over-the-counter Narcan is available to people. One of the questions that I think we have to ask ourselves is, do you know how to teach a patient how to use Narcan? What training have you had as a physician on how to administer Narcan? Can you tell a patient how to do it? Have you seen it? So we have this whole series of trainings that needs to take place for healthcare workers around educating our own, because people that use drugs know more about drugs than we do, generally. Healthcare workers need to learn about how to use Narcan so we can actually talk to patients and their families about it. We can have conversations about this in the community because just because Narcan is available doesn't mean that everybody's going to even know how to use it. So that's an important part of that thing. When it comes to treating opioid use disorder, we have got to get away from this idea that, that you're trading one thing for another. This is a treatment. This is a pharmacotherapy for opioid use disorder. 
it's a partial agonist, not even a full agonist. People are not using and diverting this solely because they are trying to get high. Although there is some really interesting, some interesting studies that have looked at why it is that someone might use buprenorphine or suboxone outside of a treatment setting. I imagine that some of it is probably because of stigma. Some of it is like, well, I, I don't want to necessarily engage in treatment this way and they're trying to like sort of stave off craving or, or treat withdrawal because they don't want to go into a particular type of setting. The idea that somebody can come in, have opioid use disorder, if they walk out and they're not on some form of medication, that's, that's very bad because their risk for overdose is so high because of all of the fentanyl and xylazine that are on the street right now. It, it approaches malpractice. It's a good point you make with the individuals that we see at the syringe exchange program, who are the people on the streets. They are so familiar with fentanyl. They are, as far as they're concerned, shooting up fentanyl. They do it with a friend who has the Narcan. They have a whole system figured out. So they probably right. could give the course. They could give the course. I mean, you know, so allowing someone to come in who you know has an opioid use disorder and you're not really trying to have a conversation with them about buprenorphine or medication seeing what's happening with overdose rates around our country is, to me is unacceptable we have got to do more around fentanyl test strips uh, fentanyl test kits there's this whole idea of course that people testing their drugs is you saying that you approve of their drug use i think we need to get away from this idea because people are going to engage regardless of whether or not you approve and so we're not saying that we approve it we're saying we want to keep you alive that we value life we value life more than we value this sort of like high-minded principle of sobriety or total abstinence. So what do you value? You have to ask yourself, what do I value? I value life. And they have to be alive if they're going to come get your treatment. In your research, I see that you at one time was actually working on a vaccine. Turns out that vaccine work is still actively being actively engaged. You've got a fentanyl vaccine, methamphetamine vaccine work. You know, my hope is that we will see over the next several years a real increase in the possibility for immunotherapy for treating substance use disorders. This idea that someone who maybe is interested in establishing abstinence, that they might be able to take a vaccine that would then block the rewarding effects of a substance should they decide to take it in the future. I think we're also going to be seeing an increased examination and research into psychedelic medications or psychedelic medicines for treatment of substance use disorders. A great study that just came out last year looking at psilocybin for treatment of alcohol use disorder. It shows the potential and the promise for medicines like psilocybin in treatment of substance use disorders. I think that the future of this can look very, very different. It's interesting because a few years ago, we were having conversations about whether or not you could or should use things like ketamine, IV ketamine, and persons who might have treatment-resistant depression, as well as a substance use disorder. Initially, there was so much concern about the use of ketamine in those contexts, persons just trying to continue to get high. But I think that we have sort of backed away from that, and we recognize that people can receive ketamine as treatment for a treatment-resistant depression and also have a substance use disorder, and that those two things don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive or have to disqualify someone from receiving that type of care. In the next several years, it's going to look very different. I agree with you, and I think what we're going to see is sophistication of our diagnostic labeling, and we're going to be better to say this is more a psychosocial origin, this is more a biologic origin. When I was talking to somebody recently about ketamine, maybe a lot of the personality disorders will be redefined because we just didn't have the chemistry to fix them. 
and now we're developing it. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. I mean, we know so much more today than we did 10, 20 years ago. That's ultimately a good thing. Sometimes our cultural or social understanding of a particular condition doesn't necessarily keep up with the science and the medicine. So you still have people out there who might think that their depression is their fault or their depression is not going to be amenable to a type of treatment like a medication. Some people don't even necessarily believe that psychotherapy or talk therapy can work for them. Maybe even separate from the stigma, there's kind of a misinformation about we were talking about models of addiction. Models of depression is another part of this as well, in the particularly among the lay public. So yes, I do think that as we know more, we can do different things, but we also have a PR problem. And we need to do a better job letting people know about the advances that have been made in our understanding of mental health conditions and substance use disorders so that they become more open to receiving some of the treatments that are available that can work if we can get them into people's bodies. Dr. Darrell Shorter is medical director of addiction services at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Darrell, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. It's awesome. It was good, really good. Thanks.